Hi, welcome to the Oh God podcast. I'm Reeves. And I'm Maddie. And we're two church leaders who are seeking to create a space for people to get curious and question everything. Welcome to a faith community that redefines faith in a world that isn't as black and white as a church may make it seem. Reeves, I made dinner the other day and I thought of you. Ooh, okay, do tell. Um, so I tried, okay, so I've wanted to try the um, impossible meat yeah. for forever Ooh, he... and it was so good. Oh, I love that. Yes, okay, I am obsessed with impossible meat. Um, for those of you who don't know, I don't eat meat. I have like stomach issues, so I don't eat like poultry or red meat, but um, I am absolutely obsessed with the impossible and beyond like Meats are the best substitutes that I have found. I was so impressed. They're so good. Like as someone who really, really loves hamburgers, mm -hmm. I was like, this better not uh -huh. break my heart. And it didn't. Uh, well, yeah, it is so good. So, so it's honestly a game changer. It, I was so impressed. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I can make hamburgers and Reeves can eat them when I cook. This oh, is incredible. Wow, that's so kind. Yeah. I. The only thing that like... I feel like is lacking now is there's not a good like chicken substitute, mm -hmm. but I've heard that um, KFC is coming out with like a good chicken alternative. So yeah. KFC, don't let me down. I am a, not going to lie. I'm very nervous for that. Oh, I'm so scared because honestly, chicken substitutes make me want to vomit. They're so gross. Chicken is just a hard thing to yeah. replicate. Yeah. Plants just don't chicken. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> I mean, sometimes chicken barely chickens. Yeah. So. <laughs> am I right? Am I right? Uh, wow. Yeah. Chicken. But yeah, so like that was a kind of the new thing. I'm trying to find ways to like eat what I want to eat, but like oh, yeah, eat healthier. Yeah. Like I definitely mm -hmm. had gotten into a space over the last couple of months where I was, I was eating like a 13 year old yeah. boy. Like it was like Cheetos yeah. and Coke all yeah. the time. <laughs> Cheetos so, and Takis. I hated that. <laughs> I loved it. Um, um, yeah. Americans don't eat enough vegetables. I do not. Yeah. I literally had to start. Very low fiber in our diets. It's awful. I had to start getting, so I'm not using the daily harvest shakes, but it's called Revive Superfoods, which is like basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I started doing that to like ensure that I was taking in mm -hmm. vegetables because I mm -hmm. will go a whole day <laughs> and just not eat a vegetable. Yeah. And... I wasn't super proud of it. So yeah. Yeah. you're an adult. Well, medicine. I'm proud of you. Kids, and eat your vegetables, honestly. It's good for you. Yeah. Get that fiber. Um, wow. Well, oh, we should shout out our new patrons. Oh my gosh. Yes. yes. We have a bunch of new friends who've joined us on Discord, which has been so, so, so much fun. Um, so we have our new friend, Emily. And we have Christina. And Katie. And Ashton. And Drew. And Marissa. Woo! We're so excited. <laughs> yeah. It has been so much. We honestly have such a blast on Discord. Like, I am such a freak for it. I am definitely a Discord convert. But um, I think it's so much fun because we have so many spaces where people can talk and, like, hang out and um, get to know one another better. And it's just a blast. Yeah. And we have, um, I think, actually today in recording we have our second community call so we've been yeah. getting on and just like touching base with each other once a month and it's been really cool to get to know everyone and to form community with everyone yeah. and to watch them connect with one another yes. like we're just really having so much fun um getting to to do that and we have some some hopes and some dreams for I know, we have exciting things coming yeah everything coming down the uh -huh. road so you know you're yeah. gonna become a patron now's the time to do it yeah and there's just if you're if you're missing out on community and you need a space a space like for community for questions and stuff, join in. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So thank you. We're so excited that you're yeah. here. We're so grateful yeah. for you. Um, and we can't yes. wait to talk um, to you more. Yes, huge thank you to all of our patrons because you allow us to do the best work that we can possibly do and to provide fun and exciting things for you guys. Yeah. So, woo. It's great. Okay. So. I'm really, really excited about our conversation today um, because we are going to be kind of tackling the conversation around Christianity and environmental justice. Ooh. Cannot wait. Yeah. So I have over the last probably like three quarters, 
um, so far in my master's program. We have been talking about like the Hebrew Bible and environmentalism and mm-hmm. nonviolence and how all of these things go together. And so it was cool to get to go back through a lot of those notes and reference a lot of the just incredible work that some of my professors have done um, to kind of give us a base for understanding how Christians engage this conversation around environmental justice. Yes. Um, because there's just like this almost weird side conversation that happens within Christian communities where we feel like we have to debate over this topic versus just address it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And it's just so important because honestly, like, I feel like there's like this lack of apathy. There's almost like an ambivalence towards the environment. And it's like, we're sitting here debating on whether or not like things are actually changing. But um, I'm just excited for today because I think it's so important to talk about what our role is as Christians in caring for the environment. Um, I took a class my senior year of college called Christianity in the Environment. And we talked about just that entire relationship and you know, what role and what responsibility Christians have. Um, and it absolutely knocked my socks off. Um, so I could talk about this all day, every day. So I'm so pumped. You're going to slap us with some facts. Oh, I'm geeked. And I'm excited because we've been in this conversation around scripture and biblical interpretation. And in order for us to have this conversation, we have to break down the creation Mm -hmm. story. And so I think it's just going to be a cool opportunity to like put pieces into place as well. So I'm so excited. But really in this conversation, you kind of have two sides of this argument where you have one pocket of Christians kind of advocating for more protective policies and actions and some who would claim that it's not an issue or it's not really a need. And what I see is that this conversation is really kind of rooted between two different understandings of what Genesis means when it talks about humans being stewards of the land. Yeah. Um, And so in a lot of ways, I think this is really centered around what biblical interpretation style you adhere to because it kind of comes down to how you interpret that specific verse and what you believe to be true about what it's saying. Yeah, which I think is so fascinating because really it does... So much of it comes back to those core um, beliefs of how we interact with this sacred text. Yeah. Well, and too, we have taken this conversation that we could be having on a theological level and we've made it incredibly political as well. Yeah. So what you believe to be true about the interpretation of this verse then becomes a like identifier for what positions you might take politically. And it's this really interesting and very complex situation that we end up getting ourselves into where then it's like, what do you believe to be true about faith? What do you believe to be true about science? Yeah. And then it becomes so complicated and messy because it becomes when you only present two sides of something or you only say that there's like two options, it becomes so easy to demonize and attack the other side. Right. Um, And it just leaves little room for conversation. So, I'm, yeah, I think it's just, mm-hmm. it's dangerous when we pit ourselves into those two places. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's just harmful, at least in this instance, but in a lot of instances, it's just harmful to the movement overall. Like mm-hmm. it's difficult to say that you do or don't agree with something yeah. or to stand up for something if you feel like you're instantly going to yes. be vilified by Because yeah. then we can't make else. any progress and we're stuck in this cycle of just debating over whether or not something is even real and then we can't even make any sort of changes. So. Right. So the main kind of argument around environmental justice and protection within Christian circles tends to stem from Genesis 1 really specifically Genesis 128 and that verse says God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth Um, and so basically people look at the creation story they look at this verse and then from that they kind of make assumptions or interpretations around what God is saying in 128 mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to understand what this is really saying or where we're coming from, we have to break Genesis down in a historical manner. So we have to kind of contextualize who wrote it, why were they writing it, what does that mean for what it is that we're reading? Um, 
And the big thing to me that is important to remember when we're reading Genesis is that it was written by more than one person. Mm, Yeah. I think we sometimes kind of, when we read something at very surface value, we don't think about the fact that it had more than one person kind of speaking into it and how those two things can butt up against each other. Mm -hmm. So Genesis 1 was authored by a collection of priests. And so they're often referred to by the letter P. So a lot of people Mm -hmm. will say like the author P Mm -hmm. to talk about this group of people. Yeah. And so when P was writing Genesis 1, they were doing that as a response of being exiled in Babylon. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the first part of Genesis is different from Genesis 2, Mm -hmm. even though we sometimes butt those stories up against Mm -hmm. each other. Um, Genesis 1 had a very specific author with a very specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And so when Babylon, kind of for some context in history, took over Israel in around like 597 BCE, a lot of people were forcibly removed from their homes and then relocated or exiled into Babylonian territory. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in college, I took a class um, from a Jewish professor called Judaism in the time of Jesus. And it Mm -hmm. talked about like, what was happening within Judaism as these ideas were forming. And what she explained was that when this exile happened, basically Babylon came in and they took the people who were the most wealthy, the most educated, what they saw as the most valuable, and they removed them from their homes and they moved them closer into Babylonian territory so that they could use their gifts. And then they would take the people that they didn't want in Babylonian space and move them down to is so it was like this swapping yeah, of people that's interesting but not everybody was exiled like the yeah. people who were deemed like not as important yeah. didn't get exiled yeah, yeah, which yeah. is interesting that's interesting I had no idea I yeah. didn't know about that history at all yeah so that's where you get um if I hope man if I remember correctly the book of Ezra Mm-hmm. And the book of Ruth, I believe, I think Ooh. it was Ruth, okay. were written as commentary. Like they oppose each other. They were written about the same thing, but Ruth was written as a direct response to Ezra because Ezra was exiled and makes some very bold claims yeah. about what it looks like for people to marry outside of yeah, like the Israelite tradition because of this exile experience. And Ruth is all about this woman coming in from the outside being married into the community. Yes. So those two books are actually written That's so fascinating. in commentary because of yeah. the exile. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And cause, um, so this like first Genesis story, cause that one was written almost like 400 years after what we see in Genesis two. Right. I think so. Yeah. So it was written afterwards, but like we see it first. Cause I always get that confused. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Which is also interesting that even yeah, it is. how they're ordered is like not yeah. the same. Yeah. So, When the Babylonian king, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, came in, right, and took over Israel, he had the temple destroyed. And this is a really significant thing to recognize when the first temple was destroyed, because up until this point, the common belief was that God only resided in the Jewish temple. Like, that is where God lived. And so the people had this really deep attachment to their land that was their gift from God, to their temple, to their tradition, right? Um, And... So you can begin to imagine and kind of feel that panic, that fear, the grief, and that like tension in doctrine where, you know, the temple where God lived is no longer there and the people are no longer on their land. So how do you, what does your faith look like? Yeah. It reminds me when, and like when I think about it in this way, it reminds me a lot of the conversations that we can and should be having with our indigenous siblings around what it looks like to have been displaced from their lands. Because that tie runs so deep. Yes. Because I can't even imagine like that type, that level of identity crisis that like the Israelites would have been having of like, they only saw God like in the temple. And I feel like we don't think about that a lot, like as Christians today, but like God was only in the temple or only in like a few specific locations, like only Mount Sinai, if you were Moses or like, you know, and today we have like the Holy Spirit where God like kind of exists everywhere, but I can't imagine you know, what that crisis would have looked like of like all of a sudden, like we don't know who we are because we're no longer in our land that mm-hmm. is so tied to who, we, I mean, they're called the nation of Israel. Right. Um, and to not know where God is, yeah. you know? So the amount of like, you know, fear and it just, wow. Yeah. yeah. And for the sake of environmental conversation, like the inability 
to protect the land that was yeah, given to, to you. With their land. Yeah. You know, and I think, and again, like this is really where in our context in the US in this conversation, like when we talk about environmentalism, it is so important that we're having that conversation with indigenous yes. people because they are the ones yes. who know what to do with the land. Yes. Uh, it's their and land. Yeah, we've like wiped it out, stripped out that narrative. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's so important that we reconnect that. Yeah. And so that feels very familiar. And I think that's like a huge piece to connect. Um, and so, you know, you have these people, they're in Babylon they are wrestling with their doctrine and like what this is going to look like. And in Babylon, they were surrounded by this origin story of the Babylonian reigning god Marduk. And Marduk, the kind of what's interesting about the story of Marduk is, you know, they were a god that fought and conquered all the other gods to create land and humanity and to make order. And they aren't housed in any one place and all of this stuff. And you have these people who are trying to wrestle with what they believe to be true about their God, yeah. surrounded by this whole other God that seems to be present mm-hmm. for this community. Mm-hmm. And so you can see where this group of priests or P would have come together to say, hey, we need to figure out what we're doing here so that we can guide these people and make sure that they're staying true to their faith and to their God and to their covenant and whatever. And so they write Genesis 1. But what is so interesting for those of you who are... Um, you know, kind of origin story buffs is that the story in Genesis one so closely mirrors Mm -hmm. the story of Marduk, Mm -hmm. like the six day, seventh day humans were created so that the gods could rest and things have order. And Mm -hmm. there's people in these places. And the, the Babylonian story was created in order to establish some hierarchy, right? So there's the God, And then there's the people down below and it mirrored the relationship of like the king clear down to the slaves in that community. And so they are very similar. They share um, plot points and they share themes and they share like entire what feels like copy and paste sometimes in the way that it reads because they were trying to take this story that people were surrounded with and recontextualize it so that they would buy, buy into this story. Right. Yeah. Um, which um, is I also have seen something I love there's a bible commentary out there called women's bible commentary Um, and in that commentary they talk about that idea of how the first creation story shares so many similarities with that you know Babylonian um, creation story and one thing that I thought was really interesting is they approached it from the aspect of gender as well and how in the first creation story you see God creating human beings simultaneously like man and woman like he created them at the same time Um, and one thing that's really interesting to point out about like the Murduk story that I think helps, you know, bring some more light to this is um, in that creation story, the God created them as like, it was like an androgynous being that had like two heads and like eight, you know, arms and legs or whatever, and then like ripped them apart, which I think is so Mm. fascinating. So then there's a whole, I know you've talked about Judith Butler before on here, but um, she has like some, you know, writings about like how, you know, gender in like androgynous and stuff like that and so I just think that's really interesting of like when we look at that creation story and knowing that it's so closely tied to that and how we see in the first creation story in Genesis there's not as much of like a gender hierarchy like it's very much like created at the same time not one above the other that's spicy I did not know that interesting Uh I love that Uh so when P writes this story right kind of mimicking the story of Marduk and they're recontextualizing it for the Israelites. They're also using it as a time to reshape what they believe to be true about God. So God doesn't need a temple because God lives in heaven and exists everywhere. Um, Humans aren't slaves like they are in the story Mm -hmm. of Marduk. They're created in the image of their God with a key role um, in facilitating what God has put into place on earth. So, you know, it's very different from how the Babylonians viewed humanity and, God doesn't have to fight everyone to make things happen. God only needs to speak and the entire universe is created. So therefore, Mm -hmm. our God is so much more powerful than this Mm -hmm. Marduk God, right? And so they're really trying to use Genesis 1 as a way of framing what it means for humanity to be made in the image of a God and what it means for us to live into that image of God. Mm -hmm. Um, But P is incredibly concerned with order, 
So if you read Genesis 1, everything has a place. Everything has a pair. Yeah. Everything goes very neatly. Um, my Hebrew Bible professor, um, Dr. Amy Erickson, she compared it to um, Marie Kondo, which I thought was great. <laughs> so Marie Kondo. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. But like everything has a home. Everything has a pair. Everything has a purpose. Everything sparks joy. Um, <laughs> I love that. It's so great. Um, but that makes sense when you read it. Yeah. Like there was an order to it so that systems were created that were easy for people to follow and so that people felt empowered by their God, yeah. um, which is very different from the purpose of Genesis 2. Uh, wow. Yeah. I love that. And I love, I think it just brings so much more light as we've talked so much about scripture in the past few episodes. Um, thinking about the fact that like, it is very clear when we see the history of how Genesis 1 was written that it's not a literal telling of what we believe to be true about how the universe was created. Right. It is very much, they are taking it as this like commentary of like, no, our God is different from this God. Like our God is better because Marduk is, mm-hmm. you know, more vengeful or whatever. So like, I just think that's so fascinating looking at like P took this you know, account of like the Babylonian creation story and like was expanding upon like, well, this is how we relate to our God and this is our God's relation to mankind. So I think that is really beautiful. Yeah. Yes. I think it's gorgeous in general. I think it's really cool. And I also, I think sometimes we, as Christians read our story and we read it literally as a way to differentiate ourselves from other communities. Right. So our story is the one that happened and yeah. everyone else modeled off us. And it's yeah. this very oh like supremacist yes. mentality. Which we'll talk about more in the next episode. So stay tuned. Hey, <laughs> but what I think is cool about this idea of our story playing into this like narrative that was happening within other communities as well, as I think in one way it connects us to this broader human experience. Yes. You know, we're constantly trying to find language to explain our encounters with the divine. And so this idea of people pulling from one another's stories and getting this idea of what the world looked like through that lens is such a cool opportunity. And I think it's something that we should really value. Like in what ways does this story reflect what we're seeing to be true about the world today? And like, how do we begin to embrace this? Not as something that has to be taken literally, but as, a a theology story that connects us to other people yes oh so good because I think it's so important to look at it as this like you know these stories that connect us to what is our role in the universe what is our role to other beings to other you know non-living and living creatures on the earth as well as what is our relationship with the divine and um that is something that I don't think we have a good understanding of right now because mm-hmm. I think as humans and in Christianity and the history of Christianity, we've been taught so much that like we are above everything else and we have dominion over the world. So it doesn't matter what we use earth for because we can just use it for our purposes and we have no sense of the consequences and the ramifications that that's had on our world. Right. And then you take it one step further. Yes. And you have a specific pocket within Christianity who's decided that not only are they you know, dominion, hold dominion over the earth, but now they also hold that over other humans that hold the same Uh, level. And so you like step into this mindset. And I think a lot of it has to do with how disconnected we are from one another Mm -hmm. and from nature. Like Mm -hmm. we, there's just such a big gap there. Um, And I think that one of the things that we can benefit from in reading this story and in thinking about where it came from is understanding that we are still connected to this legacy of people who have been trying to put language to divine experience for however many generations. Yes. Oh, that is so good. So that is Genesis 1, which is different from Genesis 2. So Genesis 2 was authored by someone who is identified by the letter J. Um, So you have P writing 1, J writing Genesis Mm 2 and J takes on a very different focus with their writing because they are so heavily concerned with humanity's desire for knowledge and the danger of technological evolution. Mm. So you see that knowledge is dangerous, that if people know enough, they'll try to be more like God and that's a bad thing. Mm. You don't need to be more like God. You need to just understand the role that you play in the universe live into your space, stop trying to grab for more knowledge than you need and to just exist because the more that you know, the more dangerous you become. Mm, That's interesting. That's like, that's kind of how I've seen it 
interpreted or that's how I've gotten to that place. Like the more knowledge that you have, the more danger exists, right? Yeah. So where P is concerned about like creating structure and containing order and also helping us feel empowered by our, you know, relationship to God, empowered by being created in the image of God. Jay is very worried about how that might inflate us to want to gain more knowledge to attempt to become more like God. Yeah. And um, I think it's interesting because when we talk about the creation stories, I feel like, well, one, we have this weird hybrid in our head of like, we kind of mix the two together of we think that it's all kind of one story. And like, mm-hmm. we've talked about that before, right? Where like um, a lot of people don't even know there's two creation stories in the Bible. But I feel like we focus so heavily, like so much of our understandings of who we are in this world, I feel like come from the second creation story because it talks so much about like, I feel like that's where we really talk about like the fall of humanity and, Mm -hmm. you know, our dangers in the world and stuff like that. And um, I've had some really good conversations like with our students in um, the neighborhood college ministry about how, um, uh, sorry, not Thomas Aquinas. Um, Okay. A lot of our understandings come from Augustine of Hippo um, Mm -hmm. because he really harped on this idea of like, you know, women being the cause of the fall and like Eve being the cause of the fall. And actually, I think that's so interesting because like in the original, like in Genesis 2, we don't even see it talk about like the fall and the sin of humanity. Um, But it's talking more about this idea of like, I think what you're saying about, you know, it talking about our, our pursuit of knowledge is so important because, um, you know, we see like this, it's more of like a condition of humanity of like, this is sort of where we are. Um, and like, where are we supposed to move from here? And like sort of outlining like where we are in the world, the fact that like things are bad and things aren't like, you know, the place that they should be. We're not like in this paradise. Um, and I've seen, there's a book that I really love by Leonardo Boff called Cry of the Earth, Cry of the Poor. And he also talks about the creation stories. And one thing that he outlines is his theory is that, um, the second creation story is actually talking about, instead of it talking about like where we came from, like coming from this place of paradise, he talks about it as we're in this world and we need to get back to that place of paradise. Mm-hmm. So that the, his idea is the author is telling us this is our goal, our ideal of where we should be. Um, so not that we came from this place and then fell and like, because, you know, we sinned, which like, obviously we did, like things are pretty messed up. There's clearly something wrong with the world. I'm not saying that there's not, but like how instead of it being this place of like, wow, we really messed up, like we fell from this garden. Instead, we're like working back to this place of like, let's get back to that paradise. Like, let's get back to a place like where we're valuing all human life. We're Mm. valuing the world around us. And we're like, having dominion over the world that's like in a godly fashion instead of this, like, let's just torch and burn everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. While you were talking about Augustine, I, which I think is so, Augustine is a a character. We get so much of our theology from the middle ages and it makes me so mad. (laughs) I'm just, I'm, I can't. Yes. Well, the best thing of one of, and then, you know, I will get myself back on track, but one of my favorite things (laughs) about this idea of woman being to blame for the fall is if you read Genesis two in verses 15, 16, and 17, God tells the man or Adam that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you cannot eat from the tree of good and evil or you will, or you will certainly die. And then in 18 says, it's not good for man to be alone Mm -hmm. and then creates woman. So woman wasn't even there Mm -hmm. for the conversation about what tree you could Uh be eating off of. Uh huh. So also, sorry, we're like really getting off onto a feminist tangent, but, um, I just think we read creation stories so wrong and so much of our like ideology of like how we view the world comes from this, but we have such a lack of understanding of what the creation stories actually say. So um, also in that story, um, in the womenist, um, God, what's it called? So in the uh, commentary that I read, that women's commentary, they talk about how Eve is actually the protagonist of the story because Eve is the one that's talked of as being active. Like she is the one that is acting. She is the one that is engaging with God. And there's over like six or seven verbs using Eve as an active story. And Adam doesn't even have a name in that story. Eve is the one who is named, meaning she is a protagonist of the story. She is the main character and the main actor. And Adam is almost portrayed as this like comically ambivalent character. Like in the story, he's the one that's kind of like, he's, 
not acting, he's not participating, and it's almost in this over-exaggerated way Mm -hmm. showing that, like, you know, Eve is the one that's, like, kind of being an active character in the story. So I just Mm. think that in itself is interesting because they argued that, like, the fall was this decision. Like, you know how sometimes in stories there's, like, a plot point for the sake of things moving along? Like, someone breaks a rule for the sake of the story moving forward? They argue in that Bible commentary that Eve was supposed to break that rule for the sake of the story moving forward. And that Mm. knowledge was always this thing that was supposed to be sought after for the sake of like things moving forward and like knowing more about like your relationship to God. But I think that there are still a lot of lines of like, it's okay to have knowledge, but knowledge to a certain point can be this bad thing. Like there's still a lot of danger in it, which is fascinating. That is a beautiful connection. So read that Bible commentary. Yes, women's Bible commentary. We will tag it. Mm-hmm. That is a beautiful connection to this next point. So Woo-hoo. incredible Look segue. Segwaying it back. So one of my favorite things that my professor was talking about in breaking down Genesis 1 and 2 is that some scholars think that the snake represents how knowledge can bring us both closer to God and push us further Ooh, away from God. That's good. And I loved it because when I heard that, all I could think of was this idea of how sometimes you just can't unsee something. Like when you learn something, you just can't, you can't unsee it, right? And so knowledge has this beautiful perk in that it pulls us closer to God. We see more of who God is. We see what God cares about. We see how God moves, Mm -hmm. what God prioritizes, how God creates, what does justice look like? What is our role in that? What's happening in the world? Like knowledge can be this really beautiful thing. And simultaneously, it can push us further from God when we have knowledge and we don't use it, when we use that knowledge to the opposite of what we know God would want us to do, Mm, when we leverage our own self-interest, when we like use it in order to isolate other people, to push us away from people, to keep it to ourselves and not share it. Like knowledge really does have life and death consequences. Like Jay wasn't off the mark on that maybe. Um, It's just, I don't think quite so literal like I think for us to read that and understand that our our choices matter and what we do with the knowledge that we earn is important Mm -hmm. um and again it's a moment where similar to most of scripture while it doesn't hold a ton of hardline fact there are some really significant truths to be uncovered between these two stories yes that is so good It makes me think a lot, that idea of like knowledge being life and death just makes me think a lot about like King Solomon and Mm. like, you know, things that we see in like Ecclesiastes and stuff like that. This idea of like more knowledge is like more grief. Um, But yet knowledge also can be good because like it's good to learn. It's good to like further our minds and things like that. But also like there is this heartbreak to it. Yeah. And I think there's a tension that exists, right? Like they had the knowledge that was, you know, gleaned from their aspirations, but it came at a cost. And I think when we think about our relationship to the knowledge we hold about the state of our planet, it is a grief-filled, empowering kind of knowledge that there's something that we can do about it, but we have to do it. And I think learning that when we have knowledge that that comes with a responsibility and it comes with a cost... Yes, that's good. What's, I think that's the key. What's the Superman? Superman, Spider-Man. Ah, oh, Madison. <laughs> you can tell that I'm very invested in superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, great power comes great responsibility. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we'll yeah figure that out. But just this idea that there's a responsibility, <laughs> and so what I love about how these two stories are placed together is that they're put side by side for a reason, right? They have different purposes. And our job as the reader isn't to find a way to make them one cohesive story. Yeah. It's to figure out how they do and they don't go together. Yeah. Like we have to ask questions. We have to think about what the authors might have meant, what it could mean for the original readers. What does it mean for us today? Like this is how we shape our belief around environmental justice. It's not just by like reading everything at face value, but by really looking at how the pieces fit together, how they don't fit together. And then thinking about, What do we do with the knowledge that we have? So on a scholarly level and as a spiritual kind of internal gut knowledge, like what do we do with those two things? Yeah, absolutely. So now that we have crash coursed you on Genesis 1 and 2, (laughs) we're going to specifically zoom in on Genesis 128 because there are two ways that you can read this verse. The first is that humans hold power over 
And the second is that humans pulled power with. Mm-hmm. And those are two very different yeah. types of leadership. Yeah, which I love that because um, I mentioned the book before, Cry of the Earth, Cry of the Poor by Leonardo Boff, who's my personal hero. But um, he talks all throughout that book about this idea of humans need to be alongside and not over. So mm-hmm. anyways. Well, and that's how that. we talk about ministry with one another yes. too, right? Like I'm in ministry with someone i'm in community with people because mm-hmm. we're like it, trying to really intentionally not elevate yeah status over yes. and above what it should be so when we read about the way that god creates in genesis 1 this poem is painting an image of structure because genesis 1 is a poem if no one has ever told you that genesis 1 is <gasps> what? a poem crazy <laughs> everything has a role and a place it all works together in harmony Um, What's interesting is that we know this, right? We can read, and if we read it as a poem and you use the literary study of this piece of art or work, you can see that everything has a place. So it doesn't make sense in our interpretation of this literature Mm -hmm. to assume that that would be completely disregarded when humans enter the poem. Like that in any other space that wouldn't make sense, you likely, unless it was really explicitly clear, you wouldn't come to that conclusion. Um, And so that's one thing to think about. Like, does this make sense in the context of the type of work that I'm reading? Yeah, that's interesting. So two words cause issues in this verse. Mm. The Mm. first is Mm. subdue, Mm -hmm. and the second is dominion. Mm -hmm. Subdue, they're both Hebrew words. Subdue tends to represent this, like, militaristic mindset or taming, like like in farming. Mm -hmm. Um, But you had an interesting take from... Patrick Ryan Patrick McLaughlin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I read this really good article called A Meatless Dominion by Ryan Patrick McLaughlin. Um, but he talked a lot specifically about those two words, subdue and um, dominion, for some reason. I want to say subdue and subdon't. <laughs> I know that that's not... I'm like, don't do it. And then I did it. Subdon't um, do that. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Um, okay, so... He talks about subdue and dominion and how subdue specifically um, is the, this, it comes from this Hebrew word radah, um, R-A-D-A-H, and it refers to, um, that is dominion. I'm so sorry. I mixed it up. So radah is dominion, which refers specifically to humans' relationships to animals. So all other living beings, whereas um, subdue comes from this word kabash, which relates to our relationship specifically with the earth. Um, so when he's breaking down these contexts, because you're so right, our English words, our English translations are incredibly violent and militaristic. Like when you look up any synonyms, I did it just for fun the other day, and all of them are like pretty violent. Um, but his argument is that because um, like when we look at the connotations, subdue is the one that is typically like a little bit more violent but his argument is that it's more violent because we're talking specifically about like cultivating the earth so like in that context when we're Mm -hmm. thinking about subduing we're thinking about that as maybe a little bit more violent because it's cultivating the earth and like creating you know agriculture and you kind of have to like tear things away and like plow things and rake things up in order to create more life but when you look at our context with um dominion that word is not used as violently so um i think that's alone is really fascinating because he talks about and he had this really good quote in that article um by a guy named david cotter that said as god is to the entire universe the one who creates a good blessed non-violent place where life is possible and order reigns so humanity is to be to the world we live up to this responsibility when we make the world good live in just nonviolence and render the blessed life possible here. Mm. Yeah. And he talks about that should be our idea that we get from sub- subduing and dominion because it's supposed to be this, this dominion of how God has dominion, which is in a just, good, nonviolent, beautiful, creative space. Right. And God calls us into that co-creation and not into this destruction and using the world simply for our whims and our mm-hmm. you know yeah. desires oh amazing especially in this thinking about the idea of nonviolence as well so a class i just took was on ecology and nonviolence and a lot of what we did was really again go back and reference the work being done by our indigenous siblings because their entire um 
model around what it looks like to advocate for the earth is typically done in this very nonviolent form of advocacy and protest. Mm, yeah. And nonviolence is not passive. Like I think sometimes we're like, oh, it's just like I'm reading a book and I'm being nonviolent. No, yeah. it's intentionally stepping back into your own and reclaiming your power and in, in like taking that away by nonviolent forms of disruption, right? Mm-hmm. And that is like how we begin to step into protecting the world and protecting mm-hmm. the land is by taking that note, standing alongside the people already doing the work and finding ways to begin to advocate, especially because like you said, this idea of dominion is really like we can take it and put it in our context, an idea of, you know, what it means to be like a ruler. But when they're writing this story, they're writing it with this idea of this divine monarch, right? Yeah. A God who emphasizes caring for the needy and the oppressed and distribution of resources and enforcing justice. And in this story and creating a system where everyone and everything is cared for and is allowed to grow, right? Like we know that everything has a purpose and it all plays together um, symbiotically. And so if we aren't taking humans in the poem and elevating them to a status higher than anything else, we can't do that for ourselves now. Yes. Mm. That's so good. (sighs) So in this context with this story, God is like humans are placed on earth as God's representative, right? Mm -hmm. We're not here for our own gain. Mm -mm. We are made in the image of God to act on behalf of God. So when I think about this, honestly, I think of um, any timepiece that I've ever seen, but specifically um, the show Rain on the CW. <laughs> Just, I used to love that show. I love that show. I follow oh, um, the main character on TikTok. Just like track with me here. So, okay. I love knowing this about you. Why have we not talked about this before? We will. I used to, okay. Uh, we'll break it down. <laughs> but in the show, you have um, ambassadors that come from other countries to court, right? And they represent their country. And they work towards their desires of their king in this land and in this space. And the same thing goes for us. Like we are essentially like the the ambassadors of God on earth called to do what God would want us to do Mm -hmm. and to protect the best interests of the kingdom of God, right? Scholar Ellen Davis, who again, 10 out of 10, there are so many incredible people to like and resources that we're going to offer with this one. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, When she writes, she talks about changing the words to exercise skilled mastery. And so with this, she's placing an emphasis on humanity mastering the skills of their role as humans without revoking their privilege of being human. Mm. So we're here to make sure that God's blessings are being upheld, that the ecosystem is staying true, that creation is protected, right? Because when God is talking to creation, right, in Genesis Mm -hmm too, I believe. Um, God tells him to go forth and multiply. And he's not just talking about Adam and Eve necessarily, but all of creation. And that is a blessing given to creation that they have the opportunity to blossom and to grow and to multiply and to live vibrantly. And as humans, we are created with the intention of protecting that growth. So anytime humanity steps outside of that protection or anytime we'd like deviate from what it looks like to uphold that blessing mm-hmm. to creation from God, we are sinning against God. Like yeah. we are essentially taking matters into our own hands, using our knowledge in a way that is harmful, yeah. that is not beneficial. Um, and you know, essentially like not acting on best interests of mm-hmm. the kingdom, right? We're not being very yeah. good ambassadors. So, um, understanding again similar to knowledge that being human is a privilege that comes with responsibilities and the privilege is that we are you know sentient beings that we can exist and create community and do things that other forms of creation cannot yeah and that comes with the responsibility of protecting that um and this to me when i read this like sent me on a whole trail of things because i think there are a lot of ways that we can evaluate the kind of people that we're we are and that we're becoming. Um, And I think one of those is looking at the ways that we treat the non-human or the other than human. Mm -hmm. Um, And where, where do we place ourselves? Right? Like 
I don't know, like if we're here to advocate on behalf of and to leverage our privilege as humans in order to ensure that all creation is protected, does that same thing not apply to other forms of justice? And if we can figure out how to do this on an earth level, how does that change the way that we interact and we engage with other people? Yes. Because I think there was a, there's a TikTok I saw, another TikTok that I thought was interesting. (laughs) And it was, you know, if you're on a date with a person, listen to how they talk to their Alexa. Because if they speak to their Alexa with a form of kindness or respect, you can begin to gauge how they speak or how they treat the non-human or the other than human Hmm. and how they treat people when no one is watching, right? Mm -hmm. Like what do they think about themselves in relationship to the world around them? Mm -hmm. If people speak, um, especially when people speak very misogynistically to their Alexa, which is a essentially the voice of a woman there to help them, Mm -hmm. um, you can begin to gauge where they view themselves in order of rank and also how they might be treating people or talking about people when no one is looking. And I think the same thing kind of applies in this space as well. Like, how do you view the privilege of being human? Yeah. And does that come with a level of protection for those who are other than or non-human? Yes. Or do you elevate yourself and place a level of narcissism onto the text saying that you are somehow better Mm -hmm. purely because God entrusted you Mm -hmm. with a bigger goal? Yeah. Which one thing... um, uh, the, that Leonardo Boff talks about a lot in his book is this idea of we are all so, all forms of life, we are so interconnected. I mean, if you look at the science, we are all made of the same elements. Yeah. I'm made of the same elements as the rock, you mm-hmm. know? Like we share, and then living beings, we all share the same like DNA, like most of it is shared. So it is so, when you think of it in that way, and like he always talks about it, the, that in this beautiful way of like, we are all expressions of the universe like come to life and like we are all these beautiful living beings um and non-living beings and how no one form of life should be greater than the next and how yes human beings are so insane and miraculous in the fact that like we are conscious and we are able to be so creative and have i mean the fact that like human beings are only a certain thousand number of years old i don't know science but Mm -hmm. um we showed up so late in the universe compared to how old everything else is. And then we moved so quickly and we have like done so many things and beautiful expressions of culture and everything. That's not to say humans aren't important, but it's to say that we need to be alongside and championing other forms of life and um, celebrating, you know, non-living beings, celebrating other living beings, other animal species and valuing their right to exist and valuing they're, you know, protecting the resource of the world so that like we're all able to continue existing and mm-hmm. coexisting and supporting one another in life. Yeah. Everyone go read that book. <laughs> 100%. So in all of this, again, the two kind of arguments is one on behalf of higher levels of justice. I think we've kind of deduced that's where you mm-hmm. and I fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is, you know, that as humans, we are entitled to be hold that dominion over the land, that there isn't a need to take care of the land, that it is here purely to serve us. Um, and, you know, however you believe, wherever you fall, there is areas that fall in between there as well. It's not just a polarizing issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I encourage you to really think about this understanding of what the creation story really is saying, the context of it, the breakdown, those types of things. And to think about your just in general relationship to the world around you. Like, are you elevating yourself to a higher status than other things? And just, yeah. you know, ask yourself why and like begin to figure out what that relationship looks like. Yeah. Um, if only to just like further understand yourself and how you engage with the world. Yeah. Um, all of that to say, I have some like personal thoughts. So I figured... Yeah. Get through, like, the diplomatic, like, everybody have that conversation. This is what I think um, and kind of believe in that space. So, for me, when I think about Genesis 1 um, and the need to combat these images of Babylonian doctrine, Babylon and Marduk, they represented empire. And so when, you know, P was writing this first form of Genesis, they're trying to say that their God is bigger, their God is better than the empire, that they existed outside of it and in some ways in spite of it. Mm -hmm. 
And if we believe that we're called to be God's representatives on earth, we're called to combat all forms of empire, especially when that empire is destroying creation and the ecosystem we were created to protect in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that this in a capitalistic colonized society is a difficult thing for a lot of communities of Christians to wrap their mind around that God was anti-empire. And so if the empire is harming the creation that God so intentionally made, then what responsibility do we have to protect that which God made? Like really thinking about our relationship outside of the systems we exist in Mm -hmm. so that we can see how the systems are Mm -hmm. causing harm. Yeah. Um, and it's also why I think we have to be so proactive in decolonizing our theology and in decolonizing Christian spaces. Yes. Um, a great resource that I, I've read it like four times uh, is Native by Caitlin Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a Christian and she is indigenous. And she talks a lot about how those two things can intersect and mm-hmm. the ways that Christianity has harmed her ability to embrace her indigenous mm-hmm. um, identity. And so for me, like, if I believe God is opposed to empire and justice, wants to protect the sacredness of creations and the systems that they've made, I have to face and address the role that colonizing mindsets have played in misinterpreting that verse and in abusing mm, that power. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, I mean, it was this, 128 was this verse used to, you know, support colonizing of entire bodies of land, impressing entire communities of people, um, it was taken and then Christians took it a step further to not just be about the land and then other than human, but also parts of humanity as well. Yeah. And it's so ingrained in our beliefs in the Western church that like, whether you want to recognize it's there or not, it's there. Yes. And we have to have that conversation and we have to figure out how to unlearn those things. Otherwise we will continue to perpetuate harm, whether we intend to or not. Yes. Um, and my last soapbox rant. I think that if we argue that humanity is somehow better than the non-human or other than human, we are placing narcissistic tendencies on top of our interpretation of the text. Mm -hmm. Like I am no better than the rest of what God called and created good. God Marie Kondo'd the heck out of that system Mm -hmm. that they created. Mm -hmm. I hold no more value than polar bears and ice caps and the ozone and the trees and these Mm -hmm. other elements of creation. And if I think that I do, then I am taking the knowledge we're warned about in Genesis 2 mm-hmm. to a place that causes it to be harmful, which is yeah. why we were warned of it in the first place. Yeah. And so putting those two things together, like to argue anything else, in my opinion, is to take on a narcissistic colonizing view of the role that I play and my importance in the spinning, floating rock in space. Oh, so um, good. Ugh. Wow. Just, ugh. yes. So... Yeah, I think um, you're so right that, like, we are incredibly narcissistic and anthropocentric as Christians. Um, There's this amazing article that absolutely, like, blew my mind written by Lynn White. Um, It was written, like, in the 60s, and I had to read it when I was in that Christianity Environment class. And his whole thing, like, he talks so much about, one, how unbelievably, like, colonizing driven that Mm -hmm. like Christianity is and like we all know that Christianity is like just colonized essentially the whole world um so he talks about like that damage and that relationship of like how we have completely destroyed like other pagan cultures and it has given us this ambivalence towards the earth because like so many other non-Christian religions like very highly value the earth and the world around us so he talks a lot about that which I think is so beautiful but then also his whole argument is that because Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion that the world has ever seen, that we are in a lot of ways responsible for the economic, sorry, I keep saying economic, for the ecological crisis that we're in today. Mm. So we, because we are so human-centered, have so little disregard for the world around us that we have like basically caused this environmental crisis. Um, He talks about, he was specifically like a medieval Um, studies professor at Princeton, but he talked a lot about um, where he sees this shift happen between man's relationship with the land and how that happened in Northern Europe in the Middle Ages or or like medieval era. Um, Right around like the seventh century, there were Northern European peasants who created this new type of plow that like 
allowed them to no longer just subsist off the or like exist off the land but to exploit the land and start to like pool resources and create more of like a profit driven like Mm -hmm. you know mindset off of the land and how that like catapulted northern europe's like industrial and like technological advances and then how like the latin church and like the latin catholic church very much like upheld that and was like no this is a good thing and how it um really gave northern europe the upper hand over the rest of the world and Mm. he then points that through like then we became colonizers then we became like you know all these other things and that because these northern he has this really good quote i'm gonna find it really quick um which I think just ties it all together because he talks about this idea of those Northern European peasants and the way that they shifted their relationship. He says, is it a coincidence that modern technology with its ruthlessness towards nature has so largely produced, has been so largely produced by descendants of these peasants of Northern Europe? Essentially claiming that because Northern Europeans, which then turned into Great Britain, you know, like Mm -hmm. turned into all of our colonizers, why... You know, it makes sense why our attitude is so negative towards nature because we've been colonized and like Christianity like came all over the world and we've just really don't care about our planet. Um, mm. Anyways. Wow. Yeah. That's so good. But it's, it's so ingrained. It I mean, is, that goes yeah. back to the Middle Ages. Like and we've again, yet to change our thinking. And it's that mindset that I can profit off of the land. Yes. Right? And, and the moment we make that decision, we yes. elevate ourselves to a status higher than we were created and i think a misconception is that like knowledge is entirely bad or like technology is a bad thing and it's not like it's not a bad thing they created that plow no not at all it is a bad thing that they used that plow to then abuse that power Mm -hmm. which then caused issues moving Mm -hmm. forward like i think we have to have some kind of like guiding ethical base yes of saying like knowledge in technological evolution and all these things are great and at what point do we say that it's probably a little excessive for example Mm -hmm. that we have bunkers of cheese Mm -hmm. underground Mm -hmm. pounds and pounds and pounds of cheese because we are abusing cattle so excessively that we're making more dairy than we are selling and in order for it to not go bad we have to hide the cheese underground yeah that's an issue yeah there are people that are starving and we have cheese hidden underground. Like, let's yeah. evaluate how that works, right? Yeah. Like, we've got to know how to use the knowledge that we're acquiring. Yes. And my whole thing is I think that it really, at the end of the day, is like we need to make a change within our moral, like, values and our relationship to the environment. Um, because, like, in, in that article, Lynn White talks about how man is going to uphold whatever their value system is. So, mm-hmm. like, because the church believed that, like, technology was so good and that it was good to do these things, it really upheld that. And so it wasn't so bad to, like, colonize and it wasn't so bad to do these things. Whereas now we're realizing, like, the universe is hurting and we need to change our moral code of what does it look like to care for the world around us. Um Otherwise, I mean, things are just going to get worse. So, like, we've got to figure out how do we relate to the world and how does that relate to how we view God? You Mm -hmm. know, like, how do we view all of this together? Right. And I think there are some, like, tangible steps that we can take. Um, First and foremost is just, like, being a student of the land that you inhabit Um, and understanding, like, we've got to reconnect with nature. Like we're so disconnected. Like I went most of last week without like really going outside. Like I walked my dogs, but I didn't do anything beyond that. And I don't have an expansive history of the land that I inhabit. I do know. So there's a number that we'll put in the description where you can text and find out who originally inhabited your land, like whose land you're on. And so here in Missouri, we're on Kansas, Kickapoo, Sioux, Osage land. Mm -hmm. Um, And just understanding, like, whose land am I on? How did they, like, historically, what did it look like for them to care for this land? Mm -hmm. What parts of nature do I connect to? Go for a walk. Listen to the birds. Put out a bird feeder. Mm -hmm. And just start seeing what birds come, you know? Plant a garden. Like, do small things. And then as you continue to educate yourself, begin to figure out, you know, like, what might it look like to recycle or to compost or to volunteer at a community garden or to begin doing those things and then begin to see, well, you know, what are, what 
places can I go to begin to learn more and to advocate for the land yeah, more? You know, absolutely. like we've got things happening right now with pipelines mm-hmm. and people protesting and trying to figure out how to get that to stop. Like we, there are things that we can do. Um, and I think it's worth exploring what that looks like and developing a relationship to the land that allows us to like cultivate a healthy relationship. But yeah. I think it also starts with knowing whose land you're on. And then yeah, seeing how absolutely. they cared for that land. Yes. Oh, I think that's so good. Maddie, thank you so much for sharing um, your wisdom and your knowledge. Oh, I was so geeked. I could yeah. literally sit and talk about oh, this same. for like... Clearly. I mean, I don't even know how long hours. this has been. But like, it was such... Oh, God. Yes. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Take away. Um, care about the environment. Yeah. And so, evaluate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And think about the creation story in a new way. Maybe go give it a good read. Yeah. And see what it says. Mm-hmm. Books. Okay. <laughs> um, bye, friends. I think we should end it at books. Books. Maddie and Reeves are both faith leaders, and the following conversation reflects their standings and beliefs, not those of their place of employment.